Let's pray again. Oh Father, let me be graced by Your Spirit to communicate the truth of Your glory manifested in Your Son Jesus on a bloody cross. Oh, may we see Your glory. May we understand the cross more. May we rejoice in that which we do understand about it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Brief review where we have been so far in this series. God created the universe and human beings for His glory. He created in order that He would extend His essence outward in creation. Thus, human beings are meant to glorify God. Which means, secondly, we saw our duty as creatures before God is to glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. Then we saw in the garden and that, that, that great promise of God about just enjoy me, delight yourself in me. You may freely eat of any tree in the garden except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that says you will go your own way, turn away from me, become independent from me seeking your joy. Don't do that. And we saw Adam and Eve and all of us in them sinned. And we saw that therefore, for God to uphold His glory at such an offense, there is an eternal, unending hell. And in that hell, in that eternal judgment, away from His loving presence, but His wrath on you, He is upholding His glory. That's where we've been. Now that leads us to this question. How can God show mercy? Adam and Eve, come here. Let me clothe you. How can He give the promise in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis? Right off the bat, one day the seed of the woman, Satan, will crush your head. Ultimately, we're prophesying about Christ. How could God, if He needs to punish in order to uphold His glory, show mercy after the fall? The answer is Jesus Christ was as a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That the universe was not wiped out at the instance of Adam eating is mercy. And it is mercy based on only the foundation of what He would do in Christ. That's this morning's sermon. In the death of Jesus, 
the two themes flowing throughout redemptive history in this book of God's love for His glory and we see, oh wow, His love for sinners are reconciled. In other words, God was doing something. God was acting in Jesus Christ And what He was doing was turning away His just glory, wrath towards sinners in such a way that He was not demeaning His own glory. He was upholding His glory and expanding it while doing so. In other words, God upholds and extends His glory as we saw last week in an eternal hell. It's one way He does it. And it is real. And there will be people there. And He also upholds and extends His glory in forgiving sinners through the mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the way I want to go out of this morning. I want us to feel. Because to really understand the cross, we have to feel the tension that's going on in God. We have to feel that, here's the reality that we have seen, sin at its essence, is a belittling of the glory of God. And yet, God chooses God belittlers in order to glorify Himself. That's tension. How does that fit together? How, in other words, can God maintain, as I have argued, He must or He would be sinful. His glory must be preeminent first and foremost in all that He does. Or He would be denying Himself. How could He maintain the value and the worth of the essence of the, that He is in the eternal Trinity and at the same time forgive those who come against that glory? And not only that, forgive them and then place the very joy of His glory into that God-belittling sinner. That is the tension that runs throughout this Holy Bible. Those are the two main foundational themes going on as we look at history unfolding. And the answer in a nutshell is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how those two themes that have tension are reconciled. To get at that, I want us to start with the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. We'll start there. 700 years before Jesus came and was born, God, through Isaiah, prophesied about Him. Start here with verse 10. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for sin, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hands. He's referring to Jesus 700 years before He came to earth. And when He says it is God, it is the Lord's will, He did it to crush him. He means kill him. That's what crushing means here. The crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Look at verse 8. It makes it clear that crushing refers to death here. It says, He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people. And again in verse 12, He poured out His soul to death. And so when He says in verse 10, He, this one, shall see His offspring, He means the fruit of His suffering will be the fruit of many people who are saved somehow by His death. Verse 11, let's read that. It confirms this. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous One, My servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. And He shall bear their iniquities. Sins. So, when in verse 10, Isaiah says by the Spirit of the Lord, Yet, it was the will, in some way, the desire of the Lord to crush Him. It means, ultimately, God killed Jesus. Jesus was not, here's my key word, ultimately, Killed by the the wrath and the fury and the ignorance and the sin of autonomously uncontrolled Jews and Gentiles. He was crushed by the Father. His death was not a fluke and it wasn't an accident of history, but it was as the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he's preaching on Pentecost to thousands in Jerusalem, you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He could have left it out. He could have said, you know this Jesus delivered up by you to Pilate to be killed, which is true. But he puts in these commas, this happened according to God's definite plan and for. 
now. Why did God do it? The answer is to solve the tension we've been talking about. To solve the tension between the love He has for Himself, His glory, and His love benevolently for sinners to be saved from His wrath and enjoy that glory. Look at verse 6 there in Isaiah. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. There's the problem. God's glory is at stake. We have all sinned. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on the servant here, Christ. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Just don't miss it. It is the Lord. It's God. It's Yahweh at work. God the Father laid on Jesus our sins. And therefore Jesus was crushed. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He was killed because of God dishonoring sin. In other words, our sin cannot be ignored. That's why He had to die. Now you ask, why? Why couldn't God just let bygones be bygones and just take our sins, sweep it under the rug, and let's, let's try again tomorrow? Why could He not do that? Well, that's where we've been in the previous weeks. And the more we understand God, the way He's revealed Himself in Holy Scripture is Holy Trinity, that the essence of His existence is the love He has for Himself in the face of the Son, and the Son in the face of the Father, this eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, without bounds, joy existing, that is His glory. Then when He creates finite, limited Creatures made in His image and they attack that glory. If He ignored it, it is the same as Him saying, I don't take myself seriously. You see, God is God without beginning, without end. There is nothing that exists therefore in this sense, outside of who He is, Him, in existence, in creation, if sin arises, which in its essence says, fully on you, you're not all that great. God can't be separated from the reality of that. There is nothing outside of Him, ultimately. If He ignored it, swept it under the rug, He would be saying, I don't take my glory and the Holy Trinity too terribly seriously. It doesn't really matter. And as we saw, God would be sinful in doing so. And so the question of the universe is how can God remain righteous in upholding the worth and the value of His glory and yet, show mercy to us who have so belittled and profaned His glory. And the answer is, in Jesus Christ, 
God was doing something. And what was happening was God in Christ was repairing the injury that sinners have inflicted upon His glory. And that is the only way anyone could ever be shown mercy to any extent and ultimately eternal forgiveness for our offense. And so, that brings us, let's contemplate this then. Jesus Christ, somehow in His life and in His death, He's the substitute on the cross. Let's deal with two, I think, ought to be thorny questions. Okay, What happened? How does that work? I mean, here's one question right here that we're going to deal with. Is it right? Is it just? Is justice really done if someone who is guilty against the state of California, against the law of God... You're the guilty one. You deserve just punishment. Is it right for someone else to come in who didn't commit that crime and take that punishment? The other question we're going to deal with, what about the sin not just of one person, but of three or three million or three hundred million or two billion people who have sinned tens of thousands of times? How could one person bear the punishment that all that deserves? I'm going to start with that second question first. Jesus only lived 33 years here on earth. He only spent six hours on the cross. And He said, It is finished. Here's that question. How could this one man be a substitute and bear the punishment so immense We talked about last week, eternal damnation. For so many in such a short time. The answer is, it depends on who the person is that we're talking about. The answer is, in how much glory the eternal person of the sect of the Trinity laid aside in His incarnation, becoming a human being, and in His death. See, the starting place to get at this answer is to know how exalted Jesus was. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says concerning Him, In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The answer lay in that descending staircase that Jesus, the second person, went through. The staircase between Creator and creature. Though He was not created. We mean the person 
who is eternal, without beginning, without end, eternally enjoying all the attributes of godness, descended that infinite staircase between the Creator and the creature by taking to His person the nature of humanity and became a human being. Now, we're not going to deal with this, and we have before. He was always God. One person, two natures, and He never ceased to be God in nature. This is the mystery of the Incarnation. But He did take to Himself human nature. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 says concerning Jesus, though Jesus, that though He was in the nature, form of God, He did not count His equality with God a thing to be grasped. What He means is here, that He did not consider in the contemplations of the Godhead, I won't be incarnated. He did not allow the reality of His Godness to prevent Him from saving sinners to the glory of God. That's what he, he did to be grasped. Here it is, verse 7. But He made Himself nothing. What, is he, what do you mean? Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So each downward step increased the gravity of the affliction or punishment upon this person, Christ. And at the end, the very fury and wrath of the Father was against Him in His human nature on the cross. This eternal one was born into the world, but not just the world, into a poopy, smelly stable. And then his parents had to rush this baby off to Egypt until it was safe to come back to the land of Israel. And then grew up in a nothing town called Nazareth as a blue-collar worker. And then in his ministry for three short years, One night he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And then, while being apprehended, he got eye contact with Peter, who denied him three times. And that night, this one was spit upon and slugged. And thorns, you know what it's like to mess with a rose bush, and you were weaved together and then placed on his head and then hit. And then they put nails through him, put him on a piece of wood. And then Almighty God the Father poured out his wrath by turning away from the human nature of this person. 
And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That. This is my argument. That experience of the incarnation and the life and the death was more equivalent to the punishment that ten zillions of human beings who would commit ten zillions of sins could ever deserve. Which brings me to the other question now. Is it just for one person to take the punishment deserved by a criminal when this person did not commit those offenses? What do I mean? Remember the analogy last week with the state, the state of California, how laws basically work and how punishment works. Say there's a murderer who is convicted and sentenced to death. Would the state of California allow, we can all feel for a mother here, okay? Would the state of California allow the pity and the grieving and the pain of the mother who says, look, Please let me die for my son so that he could go free, start over again. I will let you strap me down and inject me. The state of California would never allow it. Why? Because it's not just. The state of California, to uphold its justice, its righteousness, its glory cannot be indifferent to the sinner, the lawbreaker. In that context, if a judge said, okay, your bawling and your crying is so hit me, I'm so moved, I will allow you to take your son's place, then we the people would be abhorred. Because the state would be saying, I don't take myself, my glory, seriously. We would say, you're more concerned with the pity of the mother than you are with upholding the goodness of the state for the protection and the good of all. So, How is it right for Jesus to take our place? The answer lay simply in this. Jesus, in taking our place, did it. Not bypassing the glory of the state, but He did it in order to uphold the glory of the State. The death of Christ on the cross was not in order that He would repair the ruined reputation of us sinners. It was in order to expand and demonstrate the value and the worth of God Almighty, His glory. In John 12, 27-28, Jesus said this, Concerning His imminent death on the cross, which He was very aware of. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from the cross this hour. No. But for this purpose, 
I have come to this hour. Father, here's His goal. Here's Jesus' motive. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In chapter 13 of John, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. In other words, ultimately, in the life and the death of Jesus, the motive was the glory of God. To forgive sinners by turning away the glory of God expressed in wrath, turn that wrath away from sinners by Himself absorbing it as the Eternal Son was to demonstrate the infinitely valuable worth of Almighty God Himself who was offended, justly offended by sin. In other words, we've got to get this. Jesus' death never implied that he is going to fix Joe LeMay's sinful reputation. It wasn't the mother. I want my son to have a free slate. Let's, let's wipe it clean by me, because my son's at the center. That's not what is happening. The goal, the ultimate goal, was that He was upholding and extending the value and the worth of God's glory. And it was just, therefore, because it was the upholding of the law, of the state, the glory, the worth, the value of the state. It was just because His ultimate motive was the glory of God. And that is the essence of His sinlessness. Why did Jesus have to be sinless in order to bear the punishment for all who will be saved? Because the essence of sinlessness, which I have trying to been teaching these last few weeks, is that every move and motive and act you do is to the glory of God. If Jesus in His humanity, were not sinless, that would mean He had acted, had moved, had done, had fought in such a way that was outside of the purpose of the glory of God. It would mean He had fallen like every other human being and His heart was darkened and thus everything He did was sin. Everything He did was in a way that was not to the glory of God. That He was sinless means His willingness 
to let them spit on him and put spikes through his ankles and hands. It meant he had as his motive in human nature the glory of God first and foremost which is being demonstrated here. And that's why it is acceptable and just. We know it wasn't the mom who had pity for the sinner and that was at the center of his motive. God was at the center of everything Christ in His human nature did. Especially the cross. Even in the very moment, Jesus cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? That's His human nature. Even then, the Father knew that the gravity and the severity of Jesus' suffering was ultimately an expression of the depth of Jesus' purpose to glorify God forever. And that's why Isaiah 53.10 says, in that sense, God, even that person within the Father, was happy to forsake Him for the ultimate goal of extending His glory and thus being more glorified than He could have been otherwise through the cross of Jesus. And He was raised from the dead. Why? One of the reasons, biblically, is that the grave could not hold Him like it has held everybody else. Because everybody else, every other human being that ever died, deserved it, was sinful. Christ is vindicated in His sinlessness. Say it differently. He's vindicated that that one died the glory of God extended. How do we know? We saw Him after being dead for three days. I Just real briefly, listen to Acts 2.24 how Peter said it. God raised Him, Jesus, up. Loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because. That means here's the reason. It was not possible for Him to be held by it. That's what Paul says in Romans 4.24, it will be counted to us believers, what righteousness, to us who believe in Him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our sins, but was raised for our justification. Now, just, oh, why? Why? Why feel this? Why, Joe, go the way you're going this morning? Because how we as Christians think 
The glory of God is constantly hanging in a balance of what you think about Christ and how you pray and how you let Him teach you and go deeper with what is revealed in Scripture. And because. Know this. The cross. You're not at the center. It's the greatest news in the world. God's glory was at stake. That's why He went to the cross. And thus, your forgiveness, every believer's, have you come to Him in the hearing of the Gospel, has it rung true and precious and good to your soul? Then you can know that your forgiveness is absolutely guaranteed because it rests not in you, but in God's glory. He died to uphold His glory in forgiving all those who would flee to Him for refuge. I'm going to quote a very familiar verse don't let it be familiar where you don't hear what it just said. 1 John 1.9 Christian, as Christians, have you sinned lately? Not yes. Okay. Know this. If we confess our sin, He is faithful. And He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that odd? Look, if we just take everything I've said and say, I have no place for that in my thinking, and you say, Joe, when you sin, just go to Him and ask for forgiveness because He's just. <laughs> That's the last thing I want to hear. Justice means I don't deserve it. What's He saying? God is faithful to whom? Himself. Which means He's faithful to His glory. Which means He's faithful to His glory having been upheld in Jesus Christ means His glory was at stake in Christ's death to forgive sinners. We, and this is you, every one of you, you've been around Christianity long, you know how important this is. I'm just going to say that because you know how Christians, we people struggle with. I don't know if you can forgive me. I just struggled. I just blew it again. And we think we've got to pull our hair out for 23 weeks or something like that. Maybe I've got to do good. I'll start going to church more. And none of that will forgive your sin. The only plea is God. I plea to your righteousness, to your justice. And he just said, he's faithful and just. Meaning, if you're a real believer, God would be unjust to not forgive you. He would be denying himself in Christ and in the cross. That's why we can know. 
if we confess our sins, He's faithful to Himself in Christ, and He's just, His justice is upheld. He will not be unrighteous in refusing to forgive me. He will forgive me because His glory is at stake in forgiving me. Which leads me to one more text. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. Again, just pay attention to the way the words are structured. John, the apostle, says, I am writing to you, church, writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Have you ever thought Does it ever make sense to you that God, I am so sinned today against my kid here, against my spouse, much of my thoughts. God, I appeal to you to glorify your name in forgiving me. If you understand the cross, the more we understand it, the more we'll pray that. Your name is at stake in forgiving me, a child born again. That rests on an understanding of what was going on in the cross. The tension of God's glory and the necessity of Him upholding that at all times over against us God-belittling sinners who have so viciously attacked the essence of His glory, they have been resolved in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, before I close, I'm going to therefore now turn to one more text. We're going to spend a number of minutes in it, just slowly watching everything that I have said unfold clearly in this paragraph, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 26. Romans 3, 23 to 26. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now notice, at the beginning, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the problem. That's the tension. The problem is solved Notice first, verse 24. Because sin is a problem here. Paul knows in his mind, it's clear in his text, it seems like a miscarriage of justice on God's part. It seems like God is not righteous if He forgives sinners. That's the problem. 
The solution starts in verse 24. Through the redemption. Redemption means, this is this word that has to do with, in Christ, He did something. He paid a price. Now we ask, Paul, what is it? What is the transaction in Jesus Christ, in His life and in His death? What transpired there? He answers it in verse 25. He calls it propitiation. That's what happened. Now, if you have NIV, it probably says sacrifice of atonement. It should say propitiation, which is more crystal clear to the Greek word. To propitiate, this is a word existed before Paul used it. This is the word that was used in pagan religions when they would do their sacrifices because the storm god was destroying their crops or we wanted to sell and not get killed out there and yeah, all these different gods, right? And with the anger of the gods, we need to propitiate them. We need to, in other words, appease their anger. So we offer sacrifice to propitiate, to appease the anger of the God, the gods. Paul says in Jesus Christ, what was going on? in His life and in His death, is that He propitiated God. The, last week's sermon, wrath of God. The just, boiling, not out of control, perfectly focused, anger meted out in justice was peace cooled down to room temperature. And it's clear in verse 25, God did it. God put Christ forward as a sacrifice that bears His, God's eternal just wrath, eternal punishment, bears it, and thus He's appeased. He bears the wrath that we deserve because we have so desecrated His glory. And so Jesus Christ comes and He is the substitute who bears the justice, that is, the wrath, fury, punishment, anger of God in His humanity, in our place. Now, why? Look at verse 25b, the second part of it. It explains why propitiation in Jesus had to happen. Quote, This was to show God's righteousness. Well, why did He have to do that? See the next word? Because. That's why. Because why? Here it is. Because. In God's divine Patience, forbearance. He had passed over former sins. Don't, don't miss it. Paul says, do you see why propitiation had to happen? It was for God to show He's not unrighteous. No, in other words, it's for God to show His righteousness. 
Why did he have to do that? Because he had passed over former sins. See, if you don't feel like that's a problem, you better pray that you would feel like that's a problem. Paul thought it was a problem. It is a problem because God's righteousness in just passing over sins, His glory and righteousness from our perspective, if you're thinking clearly, is at stake. The essence of God's righteousness, I have argued in the previous weeks, is His commitment to uphold His glory in everything. The essence of our sin is a desecration of His glory. It is saying, your glory is inconsequential. And therefore, when God just ah, pass over it, it seems as if He doesn't take His glory Himself seriously. And thus Paul says, you see why he did it? To show his righteousness. Because Paul knows, on the surface, God seemed to be unrighteous, and thus he wanted to vindicate his glory. That's why in verse 26, look at it. Paul is clear. He says, God would have been sinful. God would have been unjust if He forgave sinners. Come back. If He forgave sinners without putting Christ forward as a propitiation to bear wrath from God in our place. Read it. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, God, might be just and the justifier. For this week we leave it here. The one who forgives the sins of us. Of the person who has faith in Jesus. See, what's the problem? Sin. He just passes over. You've been following these weeks and God's glory is really preeminent and first and foremost in His affections and must be or he, the universe would implode. Okay, let's just take a Bible example. Then, one day, David, instead of going off to war, stays home and he sees a bathing beauty on another roof. And he's king and he manipulates enough to get her. And he commits adultery. One of the Ten Commandments. And of course, she gets pregnant and he fears that it's going to be found out and he finds a way to get that woman, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was a soldier and was fighting like he ought. He came back and he tried to figure out one way and it didn't work, so he found a way to manipulate the situation on the front line so that Uriah would be killed. He ultimately conspired to murder. Then God sends Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet says to David after a number of other stuff, God has put away your sin. That's a problem. That's the problem David sees. 
That is an outrage. But the world that we live in does not feel that problem. That God just passes over sin? They think He ought to! I ain't that bad! They don't feel it. Much of the church now doesn't feel the problem that a holy, righteous God just lets you breathe. They don't feel They don't know and sense deep down that forgiveness of sins is a threat to God's righteousness, to His glory. They have a very different worldview mindset when they approach the book. They have somehow put humanity at the center. And thus, let's read it that way. And it doesn't work. God is radically God-centered. The context of this whole book, the context of Romans 3 that we're in, the context of Christianity is how has the glory of God been treated and what is God's righteous response to it? All have sinned. And what? Fallen short of the glory of God. When we sin, God's glory is at stake. In that conversation the prophet Nathan had with David, God said through Nathan to David, Why have you despised me? I can picture Dave. What? God, I didn't despise you. Come on, I'm a sexual being. You made me that way. And I just came overcome with desire. And I sinned, but God, I wasn't even thinking about you. It wasn't about you. And I, I, I feared and I did... Get Uriah taken care of, but God, and I didn't despise you. It wasn't anything about you, God. Of course, I don't think David would have actually said that. He would have realized that the reality is all sin is a despising of God first before it's ever a harm to a person. All sin is a preference for the fleeting pleasures of the world above the pleasure of who God is to us Himself. And so the problem when God passes over sin is that God seems, through all those years of biblical history before Christ comes, He seems to agree that His glory really isn't all that great. In other words, David or Paul knows that God would be unrighteous if He passed over sins without saving us or delivering us from His wrath in a way that demonstrates His infinite passion for His glory, which is the essence of righteousness. That is the mindset of the Bible. But the natural mind of us sinful creatures 
doesn't see this. Unless something happens. Let me just pause for a moment. That's why, Because we in our sin, apart from the miracle working grace of the Holy Spirit, we're a very religious type of creature. But we don't see the problem that the Bible is really dealing with. And we can't. And that's where at the core, the seeker-sensitive movement, which the ones that take it like this, let's figure out the felt needs of people. What do they feel they need? And then we'll pour our money and our time and our energy and structure our preaching and our music and everything around what they feel like they need. That's, at the, that's why it goes wrong. The natural man will not feel what they need to feel. And that's what preaching is meant to be. To tell us sinful creatures flying through this life with the wrath of God hanging over us, this is what you need to feel in order to be saved from the wrath of God. According to Romans, According to this whole book, this is the basic problem that God is revealing and showing that He is taking care of and will save any who cling to it in Him in it. That is that God's righteousness is His commitment to uphold His glory, the worth, the value of the essence of who He is. And so, if sin, therefore, is treated as inconsequential, it means God treats His glory as inconsequential. And so, the way that God upholds His glory in saving sinners is what we just read, and I'll read it again. Romans 3, verse 25 and 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-bearer to divert His wrath away from us. He put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. So it was to show His righteousness at this present time, so that God, it may be clear, that He is righteous. And He also makes righteous, dirty, rotten sinners like us. And He's righteous in doing it. If God wills to demonstrate the infinite value of His nature and of His glory, and at the same time, He will justify, forgive the sins and place in right relationship to Him, justify us ungodly people, then the eternal God must take upon Himself humanity in order to receive upon His person in humanity God's holy, righteous wrath in order to satisfy it and thus divert it away from all whom 
he will eternally and everlastingly save. That's why the word propitiation in verse 25 is so important and it is being attacked within the church in our present day. Propitiation means that Jesus Christ out of what? Ultimately, preeminently, out of His love for the glory of God, He willingly absorbed the wrath of God that was due us. So that it would be plain that when God passes over a born-again person like David, His sin or your sin and justifies you, makes you right and will forever show His joy to you and wipe out sin totally one day never to be recounted to you again that in so doing He is demonstrating that He is also gloriously and righteously just in making us righteous. Did Jesus die for sinners? Or did Jesus die for the glory of God? The biblical answer is yes. And the more we see it, the quicker we'll receive forgiveness. The better we'll be able to fight against the tempter who afflicts our conscience with our sin because we will know the Gospel Clearly, and more clearly, we will not desecrate the Gospel by thinking if I waller more, if I do something better, I'll feel better about Him forgiving me. You are stealing His glory. Understand that this is the precious, glorious Gospel. This is why we cling to the old rugged cross.